There are two skills that is essential, uh, you know, to, 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 to deals, you know, in the shipping side. I would say in, in cyclical business uh, in particular, or maybe also in, in, in business in, in general. It's a combination of greed and paranoia. You have to be greedy, of course, because you, you, you want to get the deal done and you want to make, uh, you know, a return. But you have to be focused on everything that can go wrong and manage that risk uh, along. Because what, what we have seen over the years is that there are so many deals and every, you know, when, when people come to you with a business proposal, you see that hockey stick uh, expectation. You know, it's, yes, it's thin now, but it's going to be phenomenal. We're going to own the world. Ole Hjertaker serves as the chief executive officer in SFL. SFL has a unique track record in the maritime industry and has paid out dividends every quarter since 2004. In this episode, we cover how Ole got interested in shipping and offshore, what made him join Jon Fredriksen and help him make SFL a cash machine, how to master and survive the cyclical nature of shipping, and what's next for SFL and their diversified fleet of assets. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Being a Norwegian, shipping has always been exciting. It's been, uh, you know, the way the way out of Norway, so to speak, a uh, small country with a long coastline. I'm from the west coast of Norway, uh, from an, from an island outside of Bergen, uh, which means that you always see vessels go past. Um, and when I grew up, we had uh, several large VLCCs uh, in layup just uh, a few kilometers from from my, where I grew up so I would say that was a very was a daily you know view looking out out at those vessels uh, you know huge vessels uh, one some of them actually came straight from the shipyard into layup um, and it's uh, it, in many ways it's also interesting if you if you see the link to our main shareholder mr. John Fredrickson who um, who owns 20 percent in SFL uh, he made a fortune this is back in the 80s when he was buying several vessels that were in layup, uh, where he bought them for essentially just the, the, the value of the fuel on board. Because at the time, people were concerned that they were just too big, that they couldn't be utilized anymore after the energy crisis at that time. And this really illustrates the, the cyclicality of shipping, 
where you have sort of a boom-bust uh, type uh, structure in it, which makes it very appealing. From, 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 on, from my, myself, uh, I stumbled into it in a way. I, after my uh, national service, I got a job in a small shipbroking company in uh, Bergen. So when I started studying at the Norwegian School of Economics uh, and Business Administration, um, I ended up being active in the business, call it in the shipping business uh, group there. And one thing led to another, and I ended up in in shipping. Started first uh, at uh, DNB uh, on the financing side, uh, moved over to the corporate finance side, and then I moved over to SFL now 16 years ago. What's the biggest toolkit you get when you start working for the banks? Because you obviously see a lot of deals, you see a lot of companies. What do you think is sort of the toolkit you gather from going finance first, then over to shipping? Because as you mentioned, shipping is cyclical. It's big amounts of money going into ships and you, you need to sort of understand finance at a, at a very sophisticated level. So what do you think was sort of the toolkit you gathered working on the banking side? Was it just that you saw so many patterns and deals or was it something specific in terms of calculating the different strategies and investments, etc.? Of course, you see one side of the of the business um, naturally. I mean, you 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 do a deal and then you you walk away and uh, you hope it will perform and uh, and you come back and and also what I think is uh, it's it's a good you know sort of it's a good you know way to to to, to train yourself in in working in cyclical industries in in working in in a financial or in a bank or finance institution because remember that the bank the upside for the bank is to get the money back with interest. I mean, that's all they get. Uh, while investors, on the other hand, they get all everything else, uh, and of course they lose everything if it goes the other way. So, f- apart from learning sort of the the the, the basics of, of of ship financing and 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 financing in general, I moved over after a couple of years into more sort of special call it situations, uh, which is in many ways more interesting because that's how that's when you start dealing with. Uh, call it situations that doesn't go exactly as planned, and where where you know things uh, you know start unraveling, and and that in many ways is uh, was a very interesting lesson. And then when I moved over to the investment banking side, you know it was a combination of getting deal, you know doing deals, you know putting deals together, you know trying to understand what makes an interesting transaction for financial investors, etc. So you could say I think it was a was an interesting way to get into it uh, for for myself. Super interesting. So, you know, many people ask questions, what makes a great investor? What makes a great shipping company, etc.? But sometimes it's as interesting to flip the equation and say, what makes a terrible investment? What makes a terrible investor? And sort of like avoid those mistakes that can Mm. lead to bankruptcy. So when you are working on this sort of like, I wouldn't maybe call like SWAT operations on bad deals, do you see any patterns? Is it just over leveraged or is it also people who, you know, ride the cycles and, you know, timing, you can plan timing and hope for timing, but sometimes the timing is just against you, right? So mm. did you see a pattern on mistakes not to do when you, on today, you know, you make investments and, you know, are into the market and actually have to commit by the investments you make on vessels, etc. Absolutely. And I would say, if there is, if there, are, there are two skills that is essential, uh, you know, f- to, to 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 deals, you know, in the shipping side. I would say in, in cyclical business uh, in particular, or maybe also in in, in business in, in general, it's a combination of greed and paranoia. 
you have to be greedy, of course, because you, you, you want to get the deal done and you want to make uh, you know, a return. But you have to be focused on everything that can go wrong and manage that risk uh, along. Because what, what we have seen over the years is that there are so many deals and every, you know, when, when people come to you with a business proposal, you see that hockey stick uh, expectation. You know, it's, yes, it's thin now, but it's going to be phenomenal. We're going to own the world. And, you know, surprise, surprise, very few of those projects actually end up looking like that. But some do. So it's all about finding the deals and trying to do the deal you feel is right from a risk-reward perspective. So just as an example, in, in SFL last year, we did uh, just about a billion dollars in new investments. But we did look, I would say, closely at uh, investments worth $19 billion dollars. So you could say, you could say, you know, round numbers, we did sort of one in 20 of the deals we actually spent real time on, not, you know, where we modeled out, et cetera. Um, and, and this is something we, you just have to do every new deal. You have to go at it with, with the mindset that this might be it. This might be the deal that really makes sense. And then you start digging into it. It could be you know, vessel technology, it could be the segment that it doesn't work right, it could be the financing structure, etc. So there are always many things that you have to look hard into when you make an investment. But, uh, you know, you, uh, you have to combine greed and paranoia. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're, you're almost doomed. If you're too paranoid, you know, the, you won't get a deal done. Uh, and if you're too greedy and, and don't have the paranoia, you know, you will lose it all most likely. When you're doing these investments, and we have seen, you know, the um, COVID situation, I mean, very few people forecasted that one. And then it's like, a, I would say like a sophisticated debate if it's a black swan or not, but it doesn't really matter when many people haven't, you know, calculated a big global pandemic. And then you, of course, have the war right now. So, I mean, when you buy investments and vessels, you it's easiest to create models of known knowledge or experience, but how do you also calculate the unknown, if you know what I'm saying? Like mm. the things that hasn't happened, but it could happen, maybe in a crazy scenario, but still, if that scenario hits you, it's very difficult to be a ship owner. Absolutely. Um, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question because I would say, you know, the black swan, as you referred to, I would say in shipping, you know, Black Swan is, is really more something you should expect. It's not something you should be that surprised over. And, and the reason why is that you are combining a cyclical market. Remember, shipping is moving raw material for the most. Of course, containerized goods is a little different, but the basic sort of dry bulk, uh, you know, and tankers, that's moving of raw material from one place to another. It's a very cyclical underlying market for the commodity itself. Um, and then uh, you you combine you know call it operational leverage or operational volatility with uh, financial leverage. So you could say it's a it's a almost it's a it's a you know it's a it's a cocktail that's uh, you know that's almost a recipe for disaster. And um, the problem we have in the industry uh, at large has been you know access to funding, access to cheap capital. Uh, which means that uh, if you combine, you know, if it's so tempting to lever up uh, because that's when you get the super return on the equity. Uh, you know, if you have if you have a nice, say, fifty percent upswing in values, 
uh, and you're levered, uh, you know, five times, you know, it's phenomenal on the equity return. But also, on the, at the same time, when things t go the other way, you know, you know, you then you will lose it all. Uh, so I've, I would say that's the that's the bigger issue with shipping as an investment or as a, a sort of a as an investable asset or or asset class is that. We've seen it too many times, um, unless you are sort of a specialist who is following it day to day. If you're a ship broker, you follow it very closely, or if you have sort of some some special sort of interest, so you do follow it. You know, then then you can then you can really sort of play that market. Then you may might be able to get out early, uh, but for most investors uh, and for SFL, for instance, we have. Um, Around 60,000 investors, predominantly US-based, most of them retail investors. And, and you cannot expect that all of these investors will follow sort of the spot tanker market or the spot bulker market from day to day. So, so uh, and, and, and uh, you know, we've seen so many examples, uh, you know, in the capital markets uh, where, you know, people have been, you know, or investors have been, uh, I would say, you know, you know, brought into uh, investment cases, and it's turned out to be very, very different. We have some examples in the market out there today, companies who raised money, you know, say nine, 10 years ago, uh, where, you know, you, we're down 99% uh, from, from compared to the initial investments and, and compared to where those investors came in. Of course, that will spook uh, most people. So what we try to offer in SFL, we try to offer, you know, call it, I would say, a safer investment or, or, or certainly a, a better structured invest, investment so you don't have to necessarily follow the spot market from day to day. So what we focus on is lower operational leverage, I, which means we have most of our vessels on longer term charters, and then we uh, can have financial leverage, i.e. borrow mono, money. If you, if you have high operational leverage, i.e. you run your vessels in the spot market, you should be very, very careful with the financial leverage because that is what it's the combination that will take you down, and that we have seen over the years have taken down most of the shipping companies. If you take an analogy in sort of like a specialized hedge fund versus an index fund, do you think that's a fair analogy on SFL? Just given that you know, it, since it's a more broad portfolio, you maybe don't get the huge swings and up and downside, but you get more stable, you know, growth trajectory? Or do you think that analogy is not fair at all? Well, I mean, we don't hedge in the form of shorting, you know, so we don't go long one sector and short another. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't invest. Uh, that's how we try to try to do it. Um, and we try to be careful. And, and I think one of the one of the benefits of looking at multiple segments at one time is that you sometimes see patterns in segments. Uh, for instance, if, if one segment is rallying, uh, and we know we know that from the past that it's typically in the peak markets. That's when the capital market is open, and the reason why, and, and and that's when you can therefore do deals. And that's where, if you are focused on one single segment alone, you're almost programmed to invest at the peak. And uh, you know, sort of the the good old shipping 101 is uh, you know buy at the bottom, sell at the peak, or or as close as you can get. But in reality, for the companies and you know, the, the, I would say listed companies who are in the capital markets, they're almost uh, programmed to do the opposite uh, because they have to follow the market and they have to 
put money to use when money is available in the market. So that's one of the things we try to counterweight in SFL. We, so, so at any given time, we will look at deals in the container space, in the tanker space, in the dry bulk space, and also we've done some deals in the offshore space. So it's all about trying to balance it, trying to find the right risk-reward uh, you know, mix, and, uh, and uh, you know, invest uh, you know, with, with a long-time horizon. Can you talk a bit about the asset classes and the weighted portfolio? Because it has changed over time, right? And right now it's very many liners and container ships you are releasing out, etc. and buying. So how do you calculate that? Because is there like a strong correlation in how much percentage do you balance the percentage as a hedge fund guy would do if he was an, invest, an asset class investor? Or do it always comes back to, is this the right deal? Then we'll take it. Or is it, even if it's a great deal, you can't take it because the portfolio then gets outweighed in terms of what you want to have in your portfolio. How does yeah. that work? Yeah, um, I think, you know, if you if you start planning with a certain percentage in, in each segment, that's a, it's a recipe for disaster. It's all about trying to do the right deals at the right time. Uh, and that's that where I sort of, well, that's one of the benefits of looking at several segments is that we can try to look at the segment. If one, if one segment is red hot, i.e. values have gone sky high, you know, you know, then you can pull back and you, you focus more on other sectors. Um, if you look at our, our, our mix, portfolio mix, it's, it's been a very interesting change over the years. Uh, back from the start, 2004, SFL was a spin-off from Frontline. You know, we owned only tanker assets. Uh, we had 47 or 48, you know, I believe uh, at, at the beginning. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, we're basically a captive financing arm of Frontline. Uh, you know, back then, you know, this was actually, a, you know, I would say a very, very smart move. This was on the back of you know, the baby boomers in the US, uh, where you saw a, a shift from, from, from uh, call it classic sort of value and growth stocks to more dividend type stocks. Uh, you looked at, you saw the hotel industry, for instance, where you have a distinct uh, different ownership in the real estate and in the operating companies, uh, sort of opco, propco type mix. And, but in the shipping, everybody, all shipping companies, owned their assets and run them in the market. So the question uh, that Mr. Fredrickson and, and his, uh, his uh, you know, uh, co-workers then, you know, had was, why doesn't, why doesn't this work in shipping? Why don't you have the same opco, propco separation? And how can you attract a different set of investors in the shipping community compared to the hedge funds of the world who normally have invested in the shipping space? So SFL was created, I would say, as a first uh, in the maritime space. A couple of a couple came out came later. You have MLPs who are, have, I would say, sort of similar characteristics. But I think you know SFL. What different? What differentiated SFL was that it was set up uh, not to be exploited or not to be just a sort of a drop down type vehicle where call it the, the principal sort of investor you know could gain a nice profit it was set up to be independently you know call it profitable with a with a profit share mechanism relating to the tanker market at the time it's very interesting because if you look at the homepage it says like three keywords it's growth profits and dividends yeah is that sort of like the most simple way to describe the company. If you manage to do those three things, that's basically the job. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you go down back to the tanker side, we started the tankers. 
started investing in also in, in other sectors. And, and uh, you know, I joined in 2006, uh, first, as, um, <clears throat> first as CFO and then as CEO from 2009. So when we joined, it was a year or two with, without much activity in the company itself. It was really managed by Frontline. So then a management team was brought in to set up, uh, to, to really develop the company into, you know, to do something more out of that, call it vehicle that that the SFL had had become at that time. So then we embarked on a strategy where we diver, di- diversified the portfolio. We invested also in other segments. So by 20, 2009, you know, we had more uh, in the offshore space than we had in the tanker space. At that time, we had close to sixty percent of our portfolio in the offshore space. Uh, we had a lot of tankers, of course. Uh, and very limited container ships and, and, and just a small portion of uh, dry bulk. So zooming forward, uh, now we have much more in the container space. We don't have much in the, in the offshore space. And, you know, interestingly enough, just uh, two weeks ago, we announced the sale of the two final uh, frontline vessels. So no, we have no vessels left from frontline uh, from, from when, the, when the company started. So it's, it's, uh, it's transformed itself maybe also illustrating you know the boom bust uh, dynamics of, of shipping we started as a captive uh, financing arm or frontline in 2004 in 2011 because of the financial crisis and or the crisis in the tanker market we ended up being the largest investor in frontline so uh, at the time and then and then uh, for those who remember you know old frontline was merged with frontline 2020 and of course it became a very different and and much bigger you know entity after that but just illustrating the dynamics uh, you know in uh, in the market what has been what has been the worst investment you've made during your SFL time? Ah, good question. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, you 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 uh, you know you, you you would hope that you you shouldn't have remembered it, but but of course uh, you do. And and you and you and and I would say, you know, as a as a as a business mentality mentality, you should be focused on on what you've done wrong. Uh, simply to uh, to understand the dynamics of of how the market works, um, I think uh, you know the worst investments has probably be you know uh, a, a drilling rig that we bought for eight hundred and fifty million dollars in two thousand and eight. We earned a lot of money on it because we have a very front loaded uh, uh, charter uh, you know payment structure on that. So we we basically recouped uh, most of the most of the money without without any any return uh but we ended up uh, scrapping it uh you know in uh, 2021 uh just uh, 13 years old um you know and and got you know next to nothing i.e you know re- recycling value for that after such short period of course uh, many years that market was booming um that uh, that rig was chartered to to uh, to sea drill at the time um, you know, their head, the head charter uh, was phenomenal. It was at six years to Petrobras at $640,000 per day. It was just insane, call it net cash flow. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, uh, when the market, when the offshore market crashed, you know, it, it was, had to be laid up and, uh, you know, in the end, uh, recycled. So, uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there are many other you know investments that you know could have been better, uh, but it's also investments that 
I would say, may you know, during the life cycle of that investment, might have looked like, oops, uh, you know, this could be an issue, and where the market pops back up again. You know, for instance, we have some container ship investments uh, with with that type of characteristics. But isn't that super interesting? Because obviously, when you look back on time, it's very easy in hindsight to see what were a good and bad decision. But when 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 you're taking a decision, you know, you don't have the fortune of looking back after a ten year period and. That also brings up the question, you know, how much destiny control do you have? Because we talked about the market, super cyclical, very hard to predict. Mm. I mean, you you showed me charts that says that like timing is everything and, you know, transaction isn't every day. So you have to sort of swing with the market at times. Mm. So in your own sort of mental mind, how comfortable do you need to be to be in bad times and not get panic and also say that this is part of the job? Because in other businesses, you can't just, if you grow a SaaS company, you can easily grow that if you have, you know, the right customers. You can grow that, you know, predictable for many years without having the boom and bust, right? Hmm. So how does that play in when you are the CEO and you need to answer for the portfolio at a given month? But you know that also that month is based on a terrible market, right? So hmm. that has to be an interesting dynamic as a CEO to be responsible for that portfolio going through those ups and downs. Absolutely. And that's where the greed comes in, you know, because uh, without the greed, uh, you would be, you would, you would just be paranoid. If you, if you look at how the, how the, how the shipping market has developed over the years, it's, it's very easy to be, to be, to be just be paranoid and, and then you won't get the deals done. Um, so, so, um, no, if you look at, if you look at sort of the market dynamics, um, generally, I would say that it's, um, you know, you, 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 have, you have to be, have a mindset when you make an investment. And, and what we do typically, we, we focus on, you know, one, we are very technically focused. We focus on, on technical developments and we, we try to be, to, to be, to be, to follow, you know, to, to be, you know, ahead of the curve on, on that side. Because, you know, if you have technology shifts, you know, you have to be very careful with how you invest. For instance, on the container side, you had a technology shift uh, after the financial crisis in 2009. So any container ship that's designed before the, the financial crisis, i.e., and th those are vessels that are delivered all the way up until 2011, 2012, they are all technology as we see it. It has to do with the engine configuration, it has to do with the hull shapes um, uh, versus the new generation vessels, or you know, which are all all the vessels that were designed afterwards uh, and built, I would say, from 2013 onwards. Uh, and and the reason why it's a technology shift is that you know the liner companies in 2009, when that market crashed at that time, uh, what they did was that instead of because before that. It was all focused on high speed, you know, a large container ship should run at 22, 23, 24 knots because it, the focus was it has to be as quick as possible from one point to the next point to meet the schedule. Uh, but of course, you know, in, in shipping, and that's, the, that's of course one of the issues in shipping is that you're if in effect pushing, you know, mass through water. There is a lot of resistance. So to, to, to run a ship uh, very quick, you have to build it relatively narrow uh, to run it fast enough with a big engine. So when, when, when after 2009, the liner companies, what they then did, they slowed down the speed. 
because the fuel consumption is exponential uh, to the speed. So reducing, you know, reducing say, say uh, speed by 25%, you typically cut your fuel consumption in half. So, in, so instead of running them that fast, they instead cut down the speed and put another vessel or two into sort of a string, uh, sort of a round trip string. Um, what that meant is that if you don't need the speed, it's much more efficient to have the, uh, to build a wider vessel with a smaller engine from a fuel uh, called a fuel consumption per loaded box. So, so it was very sort of basic, uh, but but that also means that. If you invest in a vessel built before all generation vessels, as we see it, you have to bear in mind that it will always be handicapped with a much higher fuel consumption per loaded box. Uh, the same thing we saw on the dry bulk side, but that's further back. That's typically back in the 80s. So not too many people want to or, or can or, or will remember that far. But you've seen the similar dynamics in, 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 in segments. And of course, now you have the dynamics with uh, with the ESG focus. You know the transition to new fuels, which of course will have an impact on long-term value of assets, depending on you know which type of technology you you end up choosing. Whether you don't you go for conventional and assume that you can upgrade and, and modify later, or you invest in uh, say dual fuel technology that may look great now, but maybe in two or three or four years time. You have another variation where what you thought was the most efficient may not be so efficient after all. So we have a team that's looking very hard on, on that. So, you know, this all goes into the, the investment thesis of, uh, of trying to do the right deals. But most importantly, what we do when we make an investment, we typically combine it with a longer term charter. I, so typically we do at least five years, seven years, 10 years, we do 15 15-year charters, I believe, is sort of the, the longer we've done. Um, and what you have to assume during that long you know, period is that you know, there will be underlying market cycles. Our customer will see volatility in the underlying market. Um, and that is why you know, chartering a vessel to you know, call it another operator, you know, who has who may have you know a lot of financial leverage means that there is a higher risk of that charter or that deal breaking in the down cycle because they're not able to pay. What we have been focusing more on is to charter our assets to end users, uh, liner companies uh, and others, oil companies, etc., because you know these companies typically have. Uh, higher quality economic resilience, uh, better flexibility, and therefore ability to pay the charter rate, the agreed charter rate also in a soft market where they may not earn that much in the underlying market uh, to, to, to cover your, your hire. But at the same time, when you have to have a longer term charter, they also get the benefit of a higher market. So this goes both ways. But if we do a long term charter, our, cost, our counterparty takes all the benefits on the upside and then goes bust on the downside, you know, that is really bad for us. I mean, that, that's when we, you know, give away the upside and, and absorb the downside. And that's what we have to be quite careful about. 
What's the worst scenario that could play out that affects your business? Because I was reading through your your reports and I mean, you list up a lot of risk factors and we talked about the cycles, of course, but you also explained, you know, the way you handle that cycles. But if you just look at financing, right? I just, I was reading like a paragraph about, you know, swapping interest rates, currency back and forth. Is there something like in the financial engineering that you need to be aware of when you're dealing with these big numbers or is it just... But basically, balance sheet optimization, or is financing also a very sophisticated um, play to to master in order to run this operation? Yeah, uh, of course, financing is important. Uh, our mindset is that it's not our it's not our business to take uh, call it uh, interest rate risk uh, on behalf of our investors. I mean, if they want to play sort of in, on the interest rate curve, they can they can do it themselves, I'm sure. So what we typically do, if you do a new deal, we typically hedge out uh, the, the interest uh, during the charter period. We also have some charters where we have agreed, uh, you know, interest uh, compensation, you know, clauses, i.e. where our customer is absorbing, call it the, uh, the interest rate. Uh, movements. Of course, that's been phenomenally, you know, attractive in the, in, in the very low interest rate environment we have seen up until recently. But now when we see interest rates coming up again, we have the benefit of having most of our uh, exposure fixed, uh, you know, on from an interest uh, rate perspective. Um, we don't do really currency as such. I mean, what we have done, we have now two uh, Norwegian kroner denominated, uh, you know, bond loans, unsecured. Uh, so what we do when we always, when we have entered into those, we do a cross-currency swap, which means that we are neutral to uh, currency movements. Um, uh, we basically, you know, buy the 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 you know, the, the the dollar forward, and um, and uh, oh sorry, the kroner forward. So we have a, a dollar economy in the company. So, so, but, um, and then we have, uh, you know, a funding mix uh, and one other maybe interesting observation. I mean, we, we look at diversification on the, on the asset side, but we also look for diversification on the funding side because we see that similar to the asset side, you know, the funding market also goes in cycles. So we've done U.S. Uh, straight bonds, we have U.S. convertible, we have done Nordic uh, straight bonds, uh, we have done, um, uh, call it environment-linked uh, bonds, uh, in addition to bank funding. And of course, bank funding has always been sort of the stable, you know, uh, stable you know, type of funding source for many maritime companies. But if you look at our mix, if you go back 10 years, you would have seen that we were to a very large degree funded by Nordic banks and European banks and had very limited uh, interaction with Asian banks uh, and also US banks apart from the bond market hasn't been that you know significant from in the maritime space now that's been turned upside down almost now we have predominantly funding in Asia we have also still you know, a good chunk of funding in Europe, but we have very limited funding in the Nordic banks uh, on the shipping side. So, and this has been a, a strategic, uh, important, uh, call it uh, for us, to develop those relationships uh, you know, in Asia, it's in China, it's in Japan, Taiwan, uh, where we have built up long-term relationships. And what we have seen is that many of, many of these have, what they really value is the long-term mindset, I mean, our focus. We don't play the spot market. We look at long-term sustainable businesses 
uh, and and resilience in our in our structure, and which means that we have long term performance. So I think we are the only maritime company that's been operationally profitable every single quarter from inception. You know, if you look at anybody else, you know, everybody through the down cycle have lost a ton of money. We had one quarter where we did not have a positive, uh, you know, net income, and that's when when we took a, a book write off on a drilling rig. Uh, every every single quarter apart from that, we've been uh, profitable. So you could say over time, I think, you know, if you look from an investment perspective, I think we have delivered 12.5%, you know, consistent return from day one uh, for our investors. And hopefully we will do, uh, we, we will continue uh, to perform well also going forward. That's super impressive. Uh, another point I want to discuss briefly is the, the importance of reputation, because obviously, as you mentioned, uh, the major shareholder in this company is also a major shareholder in other companies sitting right next to you, basically in the office. How is how important has it been to be, you know, have a great reputation? And when you lease, you know, maybe some people can think that, you know, maybe it's easier to get a good deal when you share the office space versus, you know, a deal uh, across uh, continents. So how important has it been to find, you know, the right balance in terms of not getting any conflict of interest? Or is that not an issue at all? It's super easy to avoid that. Or can those issues arise just because people may think they arrive? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's of course, it's a very valid question. Um, we share office space with uh, Frontline and uh, Gold Notion and Flex LNG. Uh, but what we share is reception services, uh, canteen, and some and some back office functions where we have that we own in a in a, in a shared company, uh, which is sort of the, the 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 main things we share. We run it very separate. We have separate boards. Uh, as you mentioned, we have a large shareholder uh, in the Fredericks and family. They own around 20% of the company. So we have 80% other investors, uh, of course. That uh, So we, we, we it, I would say it's run very independent. We have very limited related party business. Uh, it started as 100% related party. So that's been a very dramatic change, I would say, over the years. Um, but apart from that, I would say that from an investment community perspective, I think, you know, Mr. Fredrickson has had, has, ha- has and has had a phenomenal reputation because unfortunately in shipping you've seen too many examples of uh, of companies listed companies where management or the principal owners main focus has been to enrich themselves it seems with fees uh, to you know their own companies and uh, you know skimming here and there uh, you know on, on along the way you know S&P fees uh, management fees sales fees this and that there is nothing of that in our structure, and nor in our related companies. Uh, so it's always been, you know, one share, one vote, one piece of the economics. Uh, so, so which of course is, uh, you know, in in uh, you know from 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 an investment perspective or investor perspective, I would sh- I would say should be very reassuring. They've been extremely investor friendly. Um, there have been, I'm sure, so many chances. To what we say, exploit situations, uh, but uh, and and uh, if you look at you know the Fredrickson family, I would say maybe they you know behave in a way like a, like a fund or fund manager, because what they see is that if you start suboptimizing, say if you have one company A and you have company B, 
you know, if they want to do a deal because both of them think that this is beneficial for me, of course, then they won't, you know, call it, be opposed to it as long as, you know, corporate governance principles are followed. But if you start cross-subsidizing, i.e. you do a deal with between the companies where one company say, ah, I don't really want this, but I have to do it, it will reflect up on the value of each of those two companies. So you can say in the end, the value of, of their holdings will be reduced if you, if you cross-subsidize from one company to the other. And then, you know, going back to valuation, I mean, over time consistently, you know, if you just look at, call it the NAV, call it, uh, if, you, if, that is a, if that's a metric, uh, you know, you, you look at, you know, typically companies in, in our wider group have generally been priced well over, call it what's called NAV, and certainly well over NAV compared to other companies in the same sector. And this, uh, this I think, is not a coincidence. It's because investors feel that, okay, if I invest here, you know, yes, you could say, absolute, I may pay, you know, marginally more, but I, if the market moves, I get at least as much because this, these companies are much more investable from a corporate governance perspective, and therefore will be more attractive also when markets, uh, you know, move up, upwards. So I think, you know, the relationship here and, and having uh, the Fredrickson family as a large investor is, is, is phenomenal for us because it's given us a lot of, I would say, a lot of comfort, uh, certainly at the, at the early years that, uh, that this, uh, we both, we have, you know, we have access to deal flow. We have to remember that Mr. Fredrickson in his, uh, you know, career of uh, more than 60 years now, you know, I don't think anybody has done as many deals as, as he has over the years. So we have phenomenal access to deal flow, say on the on the shipbuilding side, the shipyards, uh, but also in the in the shipping community at large. So you know, having that you know, call it resource, I would say, you know, for our shareholders is uh, is is great. Uh, and we have seen deal opportunities uh, coming in, you know, through him. Where you know, if there is a long term charter type opportunity, he would he would send them on to us uh, typically. That's a great answer. I know that this question is is a bit hard to answer, but I mean, this is definitely a high performance system to work in. And you've been there for very many years. And if you just look at the reports, it's not given that you will have, you know, this position for so many years. Do you have an answer to why you have been able to be here for such a long time and why you also enjoy being in this environment, which obviously is, is a high performing environment, right? So it's basically, I don't think you can come here and relax and just rest on your laurels to say. No, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I think it's a combination of the greed and paranoia, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, where uh, you have, you know, you, 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 the only ones who should really celebrate doing a deal are the shipbrokers, because that they get their fee when the deal is done. We should, as an owner, we should really only rejoice when the deal is over, when uh, the charter rate have, has been paid, the, the ship has been redelivered. And and you know and and sold or or rechartered. That's the only time we should rejoice because going back to the cyclical nature of the industry, what you have to expect is that things will happen along the way here. You know whether that is uh, you know the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, and back then you know the company name was Ship Finance International, as you may recall. 
in 2009, our name therefore consisted of the two things investors hated. They hated shipping and they hated finance. So that was a, an interesting cocktail in itself. Then you had the tanker crisis in 2011. Then uh, you had uh, you know, the, the offshore crisis and you had the drivable crisis on and off air. So, so you know, this is a market where you, you just have to manage through volatility. You have to try to buy the right assets, charter it out to the right people and manage it uh, along the way. And um, I think you know, hopefully a combination of that, you know, hopefully our ability to deal also with, with situations that don't develop as we hoped for initially when we made the investment, deal with it early and not pretend like it isn't there is, is maybe an important factor. But I have a great team. This is not, this is not just me. Uh, very highly, very professional team, very motivated. You know, we, you know and, and we have fun at work. It's interesting. It gives a lot of energy. Yeah, because that was the next next question, because we talked a lot about greed and paranoia, but don't you also feel it's a case about that sort of the Buffett saying that you also should be able to tap dance to work and really enjoy yourself? Because Absolutely. being Absolutely. in this environment, I mean, you can't lose sleep over bad deals, right? But I don't think losing sleep for many months or years even is it's, it's a good path into high performance either. So in some sense, you also need to enjoy the pressure, enjoy the the opportunity you have to make a difference because when you run these operations like a good operation also means a huge value creation right mm. and maybe that's also should be the focus when you know working in this environment yeah so of course i mean we've just been through two restructurings in seedrill you know right which has been you know taken it's taken a lot of energy taken a lot of resources uh, but at the same time you know along the along the way when we were through that because if we had been only invested in offshore assets, of course, it would have been, you know, horrible. But of course, you know, now we've been also invested, we have more container ships than, than offshore assets. So, you know, part of the portfolio has performed really well, while some of, some of the portfolio has been challenging. And of course, you have to spend the time, you have to do everything that's required. But when we look at new deal opportunities, you have to have that energy. You have to think that this is going to be it. This is going to be the new deal. This is going to be great. And then, of course, as you as you call it, dissect the sort of a deal opportunity, and you go through it, and you and you look at the various sort of risk uh, reward parameters. You know, it may or may not materialize. As I said last year, one billion dollars out of nineteen billion dollars ended up actually being done in the end. You know, you have to have that focus that the next one. That's that's a great one. That's a great way of, of putting it. Um, if you look at, I mean, we're sitting in Oslo in Norway, but the company is listed in New York. And I mean, it's not listed here in Oslo. So that makes it a bit interesting. So what would be the difference in you sitting in New York and running the operation from New York closer to the shareholders, which I suspect is mainly US investors, right? But there is probably a big trade-off and good and bad side. But what would be the difference? And has that ever been a discussion of running it from US or is it better to run it from Norway? Well, we haven't sort of discussed it so specifically. I think uh, it's not it's not that important necessarily where you run it from. Um, what's important is what kind of deal flow do you have access to, and can you go where you need to go? Um, remember, we we do deals. Uh, our our customers are to to a smaller degree in the U.S. We have many more customers in in call it in in Europe and Asia. So from that perspective, you could say being in Europe. And then you can say, should you be in Oslo? Should you be in London? Should you be, you know, in some other city? 
Um, and um, I think in Norway, at least what you have here is, you know, call it an underlying, you know, call it uh, mindset, I would say, you know, from, uh, you know, in the business community that shipping has always been and continues to be sort of an interesting place to be. I think we, we attract good talent because that's the dilemma. If you're in the U.S., you know, shipping is such a marginal business. And uh, I would say, I, I wouldn't, you know, up until, say, a few years ago, you know, it didn't, I mean, if you were really, if you were the smartest, uh, you know, kid out there, you wouldn't go into shipping, right? You would do go into tech or, or some other cooler segments. So, which means that, you know, you have a lot more people, but you don't necessarily attract, you know, better talent individually, I would say. So in a small nor country like Norway, where shipping has always been big, you have access to resources. Of course, you get access to good resources elsewhere as well, but it's a, it's a cost-efficient way. Um, we have some people working you know, out of Oslo. We have some people working in London. Uh, and we have, we have a, a team, of course, also on, on Bermuda. So, um, and, you know, we could easily run the company from, from the U.S., but, you know, it, as it happens, uh, it works well to run it from, uh, or to run it from Oslo. But importantly, no business decisions are taken in Oslo. We do the administrative work. Uh, decisions are, are taken, uh, you know, through the board uh, on Bermuda. Just a final question on sort of where to operate and where to be listed. So... What's then the trade-off of being listed only in U.S. compared to being listed in Oslo as well as many other companies in the Fredrickson system is, right? Mm. Because that's something that, you know, I haven't worked in this field, so I've never really understood the calculation and systems behind should you be listed in two stock exchanges or only one? So has there ever been a discussion at all? Well, yes, it has been discussed um what I would say, you have, you have to go back to sort of the, the, the basics of, of these companies. Because if you look at um, most of the, call it, if, you call, if you call it the Fredrickson Group uh, companies, uh, you know, companies like Frontline, Golden Ocean, etc. They are very much spot-oriented companies, um, I would, and, and uh, where they are exposed to the market volatility. Uh, SFL on the other side, has more longer-term charters and is therefore not that exposed to spot market. Um, and this is back to sort of the, the, you know, the, the, the structure and, and why the company was set up. It was set up based on the opco-propco, call it the you know, separation theory, where you have a focus on yield investments um, and, 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 and yield investors in SFL versus uh, the typical shipping companies in the U.S. have been more hedge fund, private equity type uh, investors who have been more attracted to it. Um, in Norway, you know, those who invest in shipping has typically been sort of the hedge fund-like investors. Those who want to buy in low and sell high, uh, which has been, of course, what they all hope for. Uh, and not so much sort of yield type uh, investors. In Norway, that's been more focused on real estate. And because shipping has been so cyclical, and it's so cyclical in people mind, people's mind, you know, I think for many, combining shipping into a yield vehicle in Norway hasn't been so attractive. Also, with our shareholder base of uh, around 60,000 investors in the US, we've always had very significant, you know, share liquidity. I think we have around a million shares or 
you know, say plus minus, uh, you know, 50 million, 50 to 60 million dollars per day, no, per week, you know, volume in, in the US, where, whereas most shipping companies have had very thin liquidity from time to time. So, so uh, it's never been important for SFL to be listed in Norway because it, I'm, you know, I'm not so sure that it would really add so much in terms of liquidity in the stock uh, in particular. So, um, so we believed well in, in, in the US and, um, and, and uh, you know, we've had consistently good uh, liquidity also in down markets where we have seen other quality shipping companies had, had virtually not. I think the, the, the issue we all have in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the maritime industry is that there are too few large corporates in, in the market. So, for instance, in the US, you have to be at least three to four billion dollars, you know, to get, get to go into mid cap. So all, you know, shipping companies are, I would say most are micro cap, you know, well below a billion dollar market cap, which for many funds in the US is a bit uninvestable. Uh, so um, at least uh, with with our market cap of around 1.3, um, and of course with that dividend history, you know we we get into you know some of the indexes uh, like Russell 2000 and others where we are of course part of the investment community, but but still I would say on the small side. Uh, so um, if you look at the potential business combination between uh, Frontline and Euronav, for instance, I mean, that will create, I would say, a much more interesting vehicle in the tanker space. It will make it much more investable, I think, simply because of the share size and, uh, and the fact that it will be, uh, you know, into more or, and bigger indices and, uh, and uh, will perhaps help, uh, you know, shipping come over the hurdle of being, you know, too small and marginal. And of course, as you've seen in, in the Norwegian, on the Norwegian you know, equity market or, or in the Oslo Stock Exchange, a lot of the companies have typically been very, very small. Uh, and therefore, you, know, you, won't get, you won't get investment banks, uh, you know, call it, uh, you know, to, to really focus on it. You won't get the analyst coverage, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a negative dynamics. Of course, right now, you know, things are a little different. You have several segments that are Booming, your container ships have been phenomenal over the last couple of years. Drybook has picked up significant. Uh, everybody's waiting for the tanker market. You know, they hope that you know a year ago everybody expected it to come around next corner. Uh, you know, let's hope that corner is now. Uh, so, so I would say, you know, right now, uh, and offshore is also coming along. So I would say, you know, historically, it's uh, it's it's never looked as good as as right now. Which, of course, in my with, with my the paranoia side of my brain says, oh, oh you know, be, be a little careful now, because uh, you know we may see some more volatility. Great answer. If you just look at the fleet like a bird's eye view, can you give us a sneak peek into how big the fleet is going to be in your mind? We are around seventy right now. Are we looking at you know three digits, or is it about you know this is a good balance, or let's just trade in and out around these numbers, or since one of the keywords is growing, right? Mm. Is there an end station in terms of how many assets you can handle, or is it just building a pyramid one brick at a time? Yeah, it's it's, it's really one brick at a time. Um, you know, at a number. And that's just a number. You know, you could say you uh, you can have you know you can have smaller smaller ships and, and, and a lot of them, and and you can have bigger ships. 
so for us, it's all about investing the right capital in the right type of assets and, uh, and, and, and growing, you know, and, and buying more than we sell uh, and thereby building the distribution capacity. That's really everything that matters. Whether, whether right now we have an enterprise value of around $4 billion, you know, we could easily 10, 12, 15 million dollars billion dollars without necessarily becoming too big for the market as such. Uh, but we don't do that just for the growth. Uh, it has to be because the deals are, are the right deals to do. And of course, if we had bigger scale, we could also have access to some other capital sources that we are not utilizing today, of course. So, so this is, uh, this is a, it's, it's a balancing act. Uh, but get the right deals done. Uh, you know, and uh, and be careful always, and uh, you know, have have greed. You know, also on the on your on the other side of your brain half, and uh, hopefully it, you can combine the two. If you just look at the fleet, is there any type of assets you would love to buy that you haven't bought yet? Because I was thinking about this, and one example that came to my mind. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of like doesn't make totally sense, but why not? Is well boats, which has been a gigantic industry and it's also asset heavy it's expensive to buy and it's also you know a connection through seafood which mm. norway also has a great reputation on so do you look at those other type of assets like well boats or others that maybe one day could make sense or is it too far out there and too niche in the industry no i mean we looked at many many call it segments uh, outside sort of the mainstream tanker bulker container ships um, uh, you look at that LNG is another, for instance. You have LPG. You know, you have many, many sort of uh, uh, product. You know, ma- many segments here that you could look look at. Um, it's all about getting the right deal done uh, with the right type of uh, risk reward. Um, what you've seen, for instance, you know, on, on the on the on the fish farming side, on the well boats, is that there's been a significant technology development. So. You know, similar to like, you know, wind farm installation vessels. What was a great installation vessel three years ago is too small now, right? Because you have a growth in, in size. So that, of course, goes into the risk uh, evaluation. So say if you do, if you, if you, if you build an asset that's supposed to last uh, 25 years, um, say, and you have a five-year contract, which means that you have 20 years of remaining life. You have to ensure that you 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 have you can sort of you can get a good return on your capital also in the late later later twenty, you know you have to p- keep in mind that you know this uh, you know the asset you know may have to be significantly you know upgraded or rebuilt or or maybe you know obsolete, well before that theoretical uh, life cycle. Um, FPSOs over the years have been has been something we have looked at you know a couple of times you know there you have. You know, typically long-term charters to oil majors. You know, significant you know cash flows, etc. But the dilemma with an FPSO is that it's typically very sort of field specific, i.e., it's it's you know tailored for a specific field uh, with equipment on board, etc. So it's not like you can move it to another field uh, with a snap of a finger. You typically have to rebuild it significantly. Um, if we had full payout charters, you know, for that initial charter period. You know, it would be easy, but typically in mo- most of these deals, you have to accept a significant residual value exposure, which is you know what I referred to in, you know how how do you manage the rest of the life cycle, and uh, you know, we can only comment on the deals we do, but I'm fair to say we've looked at many other segments as well. 
Very interesting. Just a last topic with some some short questions about you know career advice and hiring because you hire a lot of people, you see a lot of people come in the industry. You saw you see some people move away from the industry, right? So, given your data sets and all your experiences, what do you typically try to say to a young person in their twenties or thirties who really want to have a great career in shipping? Do you give any general advice, or do you say that this is your own journey and you just have to? Find a passion and just stay in the game long enough to get good. Well, it's I think it's all about passion. I mean, to to anyone who wants to get into any career, you know, go with your heart because that's when you do a better job. If you go into a segment or you know just because you feel that I have to do this because otherwise you know, you know, uh, you know I, I won't get the right job or I won't get to the right salary level, etc. You typically aren't as motivated. Uh, so um, you know, and and if you if you love shipping, and if you look at if you look at sort of uh, the shipping, it's typically been you know dominated you know f- surprisingly by you know you know from Greece uh, from Norway you know you say relatively smaller you know call it countries um, you know compared to you know China for instance where you had you know a much bigger call it industry base and where you have much more transportation needs you know shipping hasn't been that much of a focus area so um, I think uh, you know uh, if you if you want to get in you know start you know you, you have to get in you have to start somewhere and uh, you know and you know sort of build your way through it uh, you know uh, career-wise, uh, but uh, go with your heart. More important than uh, focusing on a specific sector. But when you hire people, what do you think? Have you become great at hiring and identifying talent, or is that always super tricky? Because you can ask people questions about what they think about the business case, etc. But to see them work with the actual problems, it's not necessarily you know the perfect match of what you thought it would be. So hiring has to be super tricky always. Always. Uh, and even professional, you know, headhunters typically say that, you know, if you have if you have more than 50% success rate, you're you're really good uh, uh, on that. Um, what we have done, we've typically hired based on what we say, you know, people we have seen, you know, working or you know, or where we have good references. Um, we haven't hired that many sort of directly from university. Uh, but of course, could do that. Could do that as well. Um, but uh, you know, it's a relatively small team, so it's uh, extremely you know important that you find the right the right people, the right you know you could say, and and people both skill wise, but also people who sort of fit in culturally. You know that you feel can you know contribute to what we say the energy uh, in the in the organization in in any of the offices, um, and um, you know not. I don't really have any specific advices for you know how do you how do you get in position for that. But it's basically about building a track record, right? Because yeah. you also have to try. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter where you start. You sort of get, need to get your nails dirty and get into the processes and work with it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and what we've seen is that, of course, coming from university, you know, you know, with a with with a with a, with a, with a great CV, you know, that's one thing. But uh, it's really when you when you start working and you sort of get into the details, that's really how you when you can sort of really see the difference between you know a good performer and a and a super performer so uh, but I, I think we've been uh, quite lucky in uh, you know in recruiting in, in SFL we have a highly motivated team very good energy 
you know, even even when uh, the the offshore market was uh, was storming a little bit, uh, you know, two years ago, you know, we had very good energy uh, here, uh, very focused on okay, you know, we'll do this, you know, th- we will manage that uh, type attitude, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's paid off. That's a perfect ending, Ola. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.